Welcome to the Lifelines Podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. But also because I felt right away that it was symbolic of um, what was going on inside the, the, the characters and also inside their relationships um, to each other. But, um, but it was also a catalyst, you know, so there's this feeling of what I wanted to get across is that, you know, everybody's managing along in their lives, but it's fragile. So it just takes a, an event a dramatic event like a hurricane, like a crisis of some kind to tip everyone off and then, you know, bring out the trouble that's just bubbling in, um, underneath all the time. Welcome back to another episode of Lifelines Books Podcast. Today we are here with Helen Benedict. She is a professor of journalism at Columbia University. She received the Ida B. Wells Award for Bravery in Journalism and the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, among other honors. What stands out about her work is her excellence in both factual reporting and creative writing. She is the author of seven novels. Her nonfiction book, The Lonely Soldier, inspired a 2012 documentary about rape in the military called The Invisible War. It was, not, it was an Oscar-nominated film. Benedict's most recent work, Wolf Season, a work of fiction, is a national reading group selection. Her previous novel, Sand Queen, was named a Best Contemporary War Novel by Publishers Weekly. You can find out more about her books in the show notes. Welcome, Helen Benedict. Thank you. We are thrilled to have you here. Your work has been so important, and it really blew me away, especially reading uh, your latest novel. Um, I thought maybe we could start with that novel, and also with your telling a little about the general themes that you return to in a large amount of this work. Sure. Um, I did approach this uh, work about the Iraq War originally as a journalist. And um, when we invaded Iraq back in 2003, I just felt a burning need to write about it. And I soon found out something that most people weren't mentioning, which is that more women were serving in this war than in any American war since World War II. And more women were being wounded and killed in this war, and yet they were hardly being covered at all. So I set off first to find out, you know, why would women enlist in a time of war? And then what was it like serving in, in guerrilla warfare, which is the kind of warfare it was in Iraq with no real front line, being, serving in combat even as, legally speaking, they weren't supposed to be in combat. But given the fact there was no front line, they were and, and are. So I began that work and I spent at least three years traveling around the country seeking out women veterans of the war in all the branches of the military except for the Coast Guard um, and interviewing them for many, many, many months. But in spite of how deeply these women went into their memories and how incredibly generous they were with their telling me their stories, which were painful, I mean stories of war are really hard but doubly so when you're a woman, because the rate of, of rape and sexual assault 
by your comrades is so astronomically high, one in three women. But in spite of all that, there were times when those women fell silent, when they just couldn't or wouldn't tell me something. And I came to realize that it was in those silences that the true story of what war does to the human heart lies, in the things they couldn't say. And that's the territory of fiction. So that's what brought me to the novels. And I'd already been a novelist beforehand and written several novels. So I wrote Sand Queen out of that experience. But at the same time, I really wanted to delve into the Iraqi side, the civilians, because we Americans tend to forget about the people on the other side of our bombs and we don't pay much attention to them. Whereas, in fact, they're the ones, of course, who suffer the most. So I also began to interview Iraqi refugees. And out of that, I created my character, Naima, who is the consistent character in both the novels, Sand Queen and Wolf Season. Um, those two novels take place about 15 years apart. So you follow, you first meet Naima when she's a young medical student in Iraq at the first year of the war, when her father and little brother are arrested by Americans. And then you follow her through the death of her husband, the mutilation of her little son by a bomb, and to becoming a refugee in the States, in a little town in upstate New York, which is where Wolf Season is set. Um, so that novel is about her, and it's about a collection of other women and children who all have different relationships to war, but are all profoundly affected by war, as is the whole town and indeed our entire country. Sure. I think that's why I felt like it blew me away. I thought I was going to settle into a novel, and it was immediately brutal. You know, I mean, war, There's it, the horror is indescribable, and every single character had been damaged in horrible ways, and it felt to me like a question for you would be, what did that do to you as a writer? You've returned to that theme in a no-holds-barred way. You're looking at the worst side of it, the human devastation. And as you mentioned, for the women in particular, they're also being assaulted by their own side. And the whole package must affect you as a writer. I know your theme is how it affects people, but you didn't mention yourself. Well, it affected me as a writer in the sense that it galvanized me. I mean, it's, it's my subject matter, and it's my subject matter because I really care about how unjust war is. And, uh, I mean, war is it's a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> and it has victims that go on through generations. It's not just the fighters who suffer or the immediate victims. It's the people who love them, including their children, their grandchildren. You know, it has a terrible ripple effect. Right now I'm writing a lot about refugees from the Iraq and Syrian wars and also some of the wars in Africa who are trapped in Greece. So I'm still doing work related to that. Um, and I care about this so much 
don't ask me why that I don't know it's just in me <laughs> and uh, so I have to write about it I can't write about anything else because nothing else fires me up like that it's it's the it's the proverbial you know, elephant in the room I can't get past this thing I care about so much so the only thing I can do is write my way through it and hope that I move other people and engage other people um, while I'm doing it I mean I don't just do it for my own catharsis of course I do it because I'm carrying a message to people and I hope I hope to have to really touch them with it right and the, the silence that you you talked about a moment ago the, is that part of what what you feel is compelling you is the fact that there is this unspoken story let's call it or stories that we can't really access so in essence I think you're sort of tackling those what, what challenges are there for you as the writer who couldn't really access those stories but is still somehow bringing them to life? Would you? Uh, well, the, this is where the imagination comes in. You know, this is the magic tool that writers have. Right. So, I mean, I had all the research I'd been doing all those years, and I got to the point where. Um, I wasn't hearing anything I hadn't heard before, which is my sort of test mark. When I know I've done enough research is when every story I've heard or every opinion or expression of grief I've heard, I've already heard a lot because then I know I've reached a sort of saturation point and can have the confidence to feel uh, that I can write authentically with fiction. But what I can do with fiction is go into those silent corners of the, of the heart where people, where I wouldn't want to force a real person to go because I think it can re-traumatize them and exploit them out of those dangers. Really, can, you can really hurt people if you force them to talk about some of this stuff when they're not ready. Um, but I could go into those corners with my imagination, with fictional characters, without actually hurting any real people. But cobbling together everything I'd learned from listening and reading and watching with just imagining myself there. And one of the ways I do that is just, well, you put myself in their shoes, but also look for all the things we have in common. So even if I'm writing about a veteran, I've never been in a war, I've never been a soldier or a Marine, uh, um, or an Iraqi, I'm not Muslim, I, I've, never, I'm not, I've never been an Iraqi. <laughs> and, um, but there's so many things we have in common as human beings, and um, those are my tools to help me f fill in uh, the characters and, and what they go through with my imagination. I always kind of wonder whether people who are writing things start with an idea in their head that's sort of an outline so that they know the ending and they know all the ways they're going to develop things, or whether they just sort of go into their imagination and see where it will take them. And um, I've asked this of different people, and I've come to find out that both of those exist. But for some reason, I'm fascinated by it um, because as someone who attempts writing from time to time, I like to hear about people's process. So, did yeah, you start I'm, out with an idea of where you were going to end up in this novel? No, not usually. Some uh, 
often my novels just start with either a visual image or, or a line. And I don't know where they're going to go from the very beginning, but somewhere early on, I might have an idea of where they'll end, but I don't know how they'll get there. So I'm not a plotter. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I put down outlines, I would feel as if I was filling in, you know, coloring in between the lines, and it would completely rob me of my, of, of the adventure that the imagination is for me. That would be more like writing nonfiction for me, where you know exactly what you're going to say, it's just figuring out how to say it. The lovely thing about f fiction is it's such an unknown adventure. Every time you sit down, you don't know where your imagination is going to take you and what you're going to dis discover on the way, and I love that. So I, I definitely don't do outlines. <laughs> so how long would you say was your research period, and then when before you... Did you write while you were researching, or did you do the research first and then started to write? Um, with it, well, with these novels, because they came out of all the research I'd done for the nonfiction, it was different than my usual process. Because by the time I started the novels, I'd done the research. I I need, didn't need to do a lot more, a little. How long was your research for those novels? Well, that was you know the three years I did before the nonfiction, and then it kept going because I was I gave a lot of lectures and a lot of talks and every time you know there were often veterans in the audiences and I met Iraqis and each time I met someone even if I wasn't formally interviewing them they were telling me more and more and more so my knowledge kept expanding for years and years before I was writing Wolf Season or Sand Queen. And how does that <coughs> differ from your regular process? Um, well for example the novel I'm writing now um, I would say that the research and the writing do go side by side because I like to sometimes, you know, you're writing something, you, you hit a wall because you don't know, you know, you're trying to describe a home in, you know, in, in Men Menjib, Syria, and I actually don't know what that home would look like, so I call up one of my Syrian friends and ask him to draw me a floor pattern or something. Mm -hmm. So there's always a give and take but I have to do enough research ahead of time to at least know what I'm talking about and give me a setting. You have to be careful with fiction not to over-research, though, because if you, if you do, there's always a danger that you're going to end up crippling your imagination because you, get, you want to show off all the things you've learned. You want to cram in all those facts, and that gets in the way of the story sometimes. So there's a time with fiction when you actually have to pull back from, from the research and say, enough, you know, I'm actually going to make my book worse now. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, because that's one of the reasons I ask about that. I get very hung up on um, outlining and stuff, and I know how it can work as an obstacle. And the person who took it the furthest in the other direction was Stephen O'Connor, who we interviewed. He's a writing professor at Sarah Lawrence and had written... Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson Dreams of Sally Hemming, and so he had researched a lot about the period of Thomas Jefferson's life, not just Thomas Jefferson's life, so he had this, and he said that he'd wake up in the morning and try to start writing while he was still sleepy. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's as um, compared to someone who wants to have an outline and a sense of where they're going, the definition of the poles apart, right? So. I don't know why I interrupted you with a story like that. But. No, but I think it's because um, 
you do want to have a sort of distilled state of mind uh, to be able to really bring out your imagination. You know, so the less disturbances from real life that come in, the better. And early in the morning does work for a lot of people because the rest of the world isn't up yet and there's a kind of peace to that. I, alas, am not an early riser, so it doesn't work for me. <laughs> so I'm, I really need to wake my brain up first and that takes a ridiculously long time. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, in, in wolf season, you have this, at least for me, um, this element of the hurricane. I don't know, I just, I found it interesting because the the characters, and I feel like you're sort of unveiling them slowly in the beginning, um, seem to have a storm of their own, let's call it, internally. And I found it interesting that you decided to, um, I don't know, a hurricane, it, it really stood out to me. It just wasn't, I just find it very interesting that an element like the climate, um, it, for me in, this, in the beginning of the story, is almost like a character. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about was that intentional? That did just how did that come about? And I didn't expect it. Well, I think you almost answered the question yourself. I love the way you put that. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, it was half unconscious, half intentional. I mean, the the hurricane, to be honest, originally was just in there because it happened and because I was there in the middle of it. Um, I do live part time in that area where I set the novel. Um, but also because I felt right away that it was symbolic of um, what was going on inside the, the, the characters and also inside their relationships um, to each other. But, um, but it was also a catalyst, you know, so there's this feeling of what I wanted to get across is that, you know, everybody's managing along in their lives, but it's fragile. So it just takes a, an event or a dramatic event like a hurricane, like a crisis of some kind to tip everyone off and then, you know, bring out the trouble that's just bubbling in, un underneath all the time. I think I'm mixing metaphors, but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, so, so that's what it is. It, that's, yeah. that's kind of what It happened. gave me that feeling, so I guess it worked fine. <laughs> um, and one other thing before I forget, I just wanted to talk also about the, the wolves themselves, the three wolves in the beginning of the novel seem to all also feel like characters to me and I, I was very curious about your writing of a wild animal I mean and giving it sort of uh, giving them a sense of personality in a way yeah. I, I also found that really fascinating and I was just curious about the process of doing that with an animal versus a human being well, there's a little trick in there, which yes, is that, is from my point of view, those wolves don't have individual personalities. They're projections of each character. Each character projects onto the wolf what she or he needs from life, from, from a figure. So the wolves mean one thing to Tariq, the little boy, one thing to Junie, the little girl, and another thing to each of the adult characters. So they're really a projection of their needs, which is what I think we humans do with animals a lot, we, because we're, they're not really knowable uh, in the way that other humans are, because we can't talk to each other. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> but the idea of having the wolves there came from a real life example, which is that one of the real women veterans I interviewed does live in the woods with wolves, not in New York, in another state. 
and she did conceive a child in Iraq who was born with a disability, she thinks, because of the pollution and the depleted uranium in Iraq. Again, not the same disability as Junie has. But that was a real-life example that kind of triggered the idea for the whole novel. So the original image in my mind was this very misanthropic, traumatized veteran who's a fiercely protective mother living in the woods with the wolves as part of her protection. And that sort of was what the whole idea of the novel was born out of just that idea. Wow. So, um, <clears throat> which did come from out of the research. The wolves, though, I did research while I was writing it, and I, I did find this wolf um, protection area in western New York and spent quite a lot of time just hanging out with the wolves, watching them. Tell us a little them. bit about so wolves cool. or what, any interesting, <laughs> what any other yes, observations about so wolves. Yes, they're so fascinating. <laughs> they? Firstly, yes. they're so smart. You know, the, I think I say this in the novel, the hippocampus, which is where we store our knowledge in our brain, theirs is 40% bigger than a domestic dog's. So <clears throat> they're much, much, much smarter than dogs. But they're not, they're not bred. They haven't been bred over, over the centuries to interact with us. So they wouldn't necessarily be obedient or respond to our language and so on the way dog, domestic dogs do. But for example, a wolf can watch you undo a latch on a gate once and know how to do it, him or herself. They also have, a, they have very elaborate and human-like social relations in their packs. Um, everybody in the pack has a, a role, nannies, Clowns, like the court jester, to to to, to um, diffuse tensions. The the language of their howling is extremely complex. One of my favourite little facts about wolves is that they each learn to howl in all different voices. So that if they're a small pack and there's a rival pack nearby, or they can howl in all different ways. So they sound like there are many more of them than there are. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> but they're, they're also just stunning animals. They're so beautiful. They're so graceful and majestic. Mm -hmm. They're mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, that was the, such fun to and, do. That. And what are the, um, I suppose, <clears throat> wilder, scarier sides of wolves? I think, is it just the typical? Because I think most of us see a wolf and we're just not very excited about that <laughs> engagement, right? <laughs> we're like, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> well, I think one of the most sinister aspects of the way they hunt is that they will, they will find a herd of, say, deer. And they'll pick the weakest one, maybe because it's sickly or because it's a baby or because it's just it's a doe's just given birth or and um they will separate that one from the rest of the herd, and then they'll just run after her and run and run and run and run there for days and nights if necessary until they exhaust her and she falls down and they attack so that's pretty creepy, yeah. Also very reflective of the topic of war. I mean, you know, you start right away in the novel with the wolves and it is emotionally impactful because when I think of a wolf, I don't think that I'm going to pet it. I think that it could turn on me and destroy me and it's very much the way I think about the feelings associated with war. So I'm curious um, whether they ever do... Um, form a bond with Junie or Rin in the book because I haven't gotten all the way to the end. But we 
not have any spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> but I imagine when you take on these really painful uh, experiences and people hear you voicing their painful experiences, that a bond happens that you maybe hear from people or feel like you're in a community with them in a way that is uh, much deeper and um, uh, more indestructible than the ordinary social connections in civil society. I mean, I know soldiers reportedly have that kind of bond with their comrades in arms. And in a sense, you know, they, uh, pe the people you interviewed, especially women you interviewed, they have entrusted something to you about their survival. It's an emotional um, thing that they've entrusted to you, but you're sort of like the soldiers who come to depend on each other and um, feel a bond that will never die, really. And I'm wondering whether people came to you after the book or whether they stayed around you or whether you felt a community grew up out of that. Yes, I've had, over the years, I've had lots of really wonderful letters or interactions um, with women veterans who... Um, had felt really, really alone because one of the tragedies about being a woman in the military is that really often you're denied that that very camaraderie you're just you were just describing. Mm. I was wondering. <clears throat> that that's it's yeah. not necessarily some of them have it, but a lot of them don't, and that's that's why I call the nonfiction book "The Lonely Soldier" was about exactly that, going through all that that terror and trauma without the the comfort of camaraderie. In fact, being a kind of outcast the whole time is really hard. So um, they are—they have learned, a lot of these women, to be deeply distrustful. And because of that, they weren't necessarily talking to each other about what they were going through. So they, a lot of them just felt, told me they felt completely alone. They thought they were the only ones who'd been raped or the only ones who'd been relentlessly sexually harassed or or the only ones who were the object of, you know, some really vicious racism too. That's a big part of my book as well. Um, and so when they read the book or came to events, they found out, oh, no, not only am I not alone, but it's an epidemic. You know? So there was a comfort in that, and that, that was lovely to see people realizing that, yeah. But this notion of um, the people who are being sent out to do so-called heroic, saving, protective work, there's something just hideous about how completely corrupted and turned upside down that is when you look into the ranks of the military, our military. But I think there's also an element of uh the fallibility of being human, right? Because I, I, I would imagine that, and I'm not saying this to justify any action, I wouldn't, but I imagine the situation of war being uh, there a small population of women and the fact that they're there. I'm not saying, obviously, that this is a good thing, but I think that there's another element at play here, which is, you know, humanity being what it is, um, call it physiological or whatever the, the, the need could potentially be in the end. I mean, there's just another element here at play, I think. Well, it reminds me of what you said about your theme, which is how war trickles out and reaches out. And, and um, I guess part of what Maureen is getting at is that when you take the men who are the soldiers and possibly join with high-minded 
ideals and put them in war, it begins a domino effect, and then they take the poison that's being heaped on their plate and somehow transmit it. Um, well, into we the have to be careful lives. the way we talk about this because, right. firstly, I, I two things I want to make quite clear. Um, <clears throat> that not all men in the military are rapists. Certainly not. <laughs> yes, the vast majority are not and would never dream of being, A. B, I don't think rape is intrinsic to men just because they're men. Mm. Um, it comes out of your personal history and your culture and what you've been taught and what we know. How the, let me go back to a couple of studies. Half, there are two really important studies of both the Marines and the um, Army that show among the enlisted ranks. Mm. Half the men had come from families that were physically abusive when they were children and half the women had been sexually assaulted as children and many had been both. So you've got a lot of people in the military who come from violent homes and then joined the military to escape and maybe in many cases not to feel like a victim anymore to, but to feel strong. But we do know, you know, that trauma replicates it goes, replicates itself through generations. That's one element of it. But the other is it's in the culture of the military. The military is very misogynistic and it teaches you to be misogynistic. And I explain this in, in my book. And then when you add the traumas of war, I mean, the military is an inherently uh, violent organization. Its whole purpose is to teach you to kill, which we cannot, whatever they say, whatever euphemisms are used, that is the ultimate purpose. Um, <clears throat> so they're being given the message, you can kill, but you can't rape. But the, the basic message is violence prevails. So it's complicated to go into, which is why I had to write a book about it. Um, but I want to make very clear that uh, I do blame the culture of the military for a lot of this. There's a, not enough consequences. There are very small amounts of punishment. The, the conviction rate is tiny, so there isn't really a lot of pressure to not do it. But, um, but there's a big difference between the men who are rapists and the ones who aren't. On the other hand, Sexual assault, I mean sexual harassment, is just about universal. So it is a very, very sexist environment. But um, <clears throat> so some of that comes out in War Season 2 because you see that affecting some of the characters and you see uh, both the women and the men who've been through war have been affected by that very culture I was just talking about. So I did bring that into the novel too, but I don't explain it, you know, in a non-fictiony way the way I sure. do in my in the in the Lonely Soldier book. So now that those books have been written, how do you feel as a writer? Do you feel that you have, um, or at least closely, fully exhausted your or or fed your compulsion? Let's call it. Um, well, because sometimes we write because we want to make a difference. Sometimes we write because we want to find an answer to something that bothers us, right? We have all these different reasons for it. And my question is more about now that the books have been written, now that you've gotten some reviews, you've gotten some feedback, you've gotten letters, you've, how do you feel about the outcome of those works as a writer? Um, I'm... I'm pleased. I mean, I think, I think they have affected some people and um, moved some people and triggered some, you know, worthwhile conversations. Uh, 
I'm not privy to most of them. You know, one doesn't hear from most of one's readers or ever meet them or anything. Um, so it's hard to say, really, but um, I'm glad I wrote them, yeah. And I'm glad they're out there. Where do you feel the hope for change or the hope for, you know, improvements lies? Where would you look to and expect to see the most positive signals and possibilities arising? Well, it's really hard to answer that in an upbeat way right now, (laughs) in the middle of what we're in the middle of politically. Um, I think we, I mean, I am sorry, my answer has to be political. Um, I think we have to have a government that is going to put humanity and humaneness as a primary value in everything we do. We have to stop villainizing and persecuting immigrants. We have to stop betraying the victims of our own wars. We have to stop uh, waging unnecessary wars like the Iraq War. Um, We have to face the consequences of our actions. We have to stop uh, fostering white supremacy and Islamophobia. And I think we have candidates out there who believe that and I think a great many Americans believe those things too. We don't have representatives right now on the same page as us. We have representatives right now who are from the Supreme Court and the President and people like Stephen Miller whose values are absolutely the opposite of what I call being humane and what most of us would call being humane. When we this country was supposed to be about values to do with helping. Look, it's right on <laughs> helping the downtrodden. It's right written underneath the Statue of Liberty, for goodness sake. And we have completely lost our way and we have to get it back. Without that, uh, nothing else will really count. Good. Well, it doesn't seem to me to be strictly American. It's it may be that uh, no, it's all over uh, Europe too. Exactly. And that's what I'm writing about now. I'm doing a series of articles on refugees who are trapped in this terrible island camp called in, on the island of Samos in Greece, and they are the victims of exactly the same kind of attitudes in in Europe as we are, as we're exercising here on our borders. You know, the villainizing of refugees, the um, the the racism inherent in that, the, the Islamophobia inherent in that, um, and um, trying to just make them go away by denying why they fled in the first place. Now, I think we might tend to agree with you with what you said earlier, which is war itself, right, seems almost like just nonsensical, like it shouldn't exist. So... What should exist, right? What would be the other side of war? We're talking peace, but then I think that we deal with irrationality on some level, right? We deal with strong beliefs that may or may not be um, viable or, or, or sensical. So why don't, I mean, look, we can talk about perfect worlds. We can't necessarily create them. Right. But I do think we can envision sometimes another way 
of living, another way of interacting as a global community, what do you think might might that look like if, if you have any sense for it? <laughs> I know it's a tough Why question. Why a novelist precisely? <laughs> I'm not a presidential candidate, but... <laughs> you are now. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? This isn't, uh, I actually was being asked similar questions uh, recently in another interview. Mm. Um, general answers will all just sound Pollyanna-ish, so I'm going, to, I'm going to avoid those because they're kind of obvious. But, um, but I think we can look at specific uh, areas of the world, you know, and, and think about, examine what led, like what led to Syria, you know, what led to Iraq, what led to the crisis in Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador, and how, what should have been done and what is it not too late to be done. Well, that um, sounds like a, that actually sounds quite reasonable. Yeah, and being British, I assume you're both a British and American citizen. Yeah, exactly. And I'm assuming that because of your accent, right. that accent. you <laughs> have a great deal of personal identity with um, the UK, right? I mean, would you consider yourself sort of partly British? I know British people tend to be very proud of being British, so... What I guess I'm getting at is that there was sort of a similar cycle that uh, the United Kingdom went through in the rise of its imperialism and then the late stage. um, I'm going to just interrupt, if I may, and just to push back a little. I'm not proud of being British and I'm not proud of being American. I'm against nationalism. I think it leads to nothing but trouble. So... (laughs) I'm somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, and there are aspects of of the Brits I really like, and there are aspects of this country I really like, and there are aspects of both which horrify me and of which I'm ashamed. And I'm not too keen on imperialism. We, you know, both these nations I belong to um, are been, are, have been, and are imperialistic. Take Iraq, both of those nations. Um, messed up in Iraq, we did not need to invade, we did not need, in 2003, we did not need to wage a war. So I feel doubly responsible. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I became so obsessed with this. So just, just so, no nationalistic pride, but otherwise carry on with your question. I just, well, to... I just think it's extremely important for voices like yours to be heard because a lot of people feel that kind of weariness and desperation for some humanity to shine through and relieve of this constant feeling of doom, you know? And so for you to take on this topic and to say these things is brave and also really greatly appreciated and probably exactly what's needed to bring us out of it. Thanks. Well, uh, let me just come back to wolf season a minute because I think there's an example, it's a smaller example, but perhaps something more doable um, of kind of how to approach these larger problems, which is one of the things that novels do and that I try to do in novels is show how complicated people are, you know, that I mean, people are not all good or all bad. And when they do bad things, there are often reasons behind it. doesn't mean it justifies it, but there are reasons that help us understand people. So so Rin, the mo- one of the mothers, um, the mother with the wolves, 
she does some terrible things in the novel, but she's also incredibly devoted, really, really loving mother. So I hope she's sympathetic, even though she might make you gasp in horror at times, you know. And um, I think that trying to understand people instead of putting them in little boxes is a really important key that we can do on, individ on an individual level to sort of push back against the, the wave, the fashion for hatred and extremism that we are in in the middle of this right now. You know, let's not put people in, oh, you're a Trump supporter, therefore I disagree with everything about you, or oh, you're a liberal and vice versa. Um, because that, people are not that simple and people have a lot in common and people have a lot of good in them even if some of their ideas are violently opposed to our ideas and I do think it's important to explore that in literature that's why we have to keep reading that's why we have to keep writing um, and keep our hearts open well thank you so much for sharing that I think that that was a, a, a really great answer actually to all of our our, our introspection we were just trying to poke at you and, and we enjoyed that but um, so we're, we're going to um, uh, move on to the next segment, oh, okay. which uh, is all about um, asking you different kinds of questions, getting to know you in a different way. So we, <laughs> for example, give you uh -oh. an opportunity. <laughs> this is, yeah, we've been, we've been playing around season three. This is our season three uh -huh. uh, change. So uh, Diane and I will ask you whatever we'd like. So, I mean, but that is, is a little bit different. So, for example, let's talk a little bit about, I still, I really like this one. I'm going to keep asking this one. So, who would you like to meet, living or not, in the literary world? And what would you say to them? The first thing you would say to them if they were sitting across from you. Mm. Most of the people I like to read most, I probably wouldn't want to meet. <laughs> like, oh, really? like Leo Tolstoy, because he would treat me in like like an unsayable word on the air because he was such a <laughs> sexist. That's true. I like that, Right, that would be true of, of many of the of the male writers I, I really admire. Um, you could I, also answer about people in the future. That was part of the question, in the past, the present, or the future. Who would be the future? How do you do that? I'm letting her make up a fantasy. Oh, uh, well, you're just adding, okay, you're changing my question. Okay, cool. But just, Whatever. I would, I would think I would really enjoy Jane Austen's company, because she was such a wit. Oh, <laughs> she was witty. So what, yeah, what would you but, say to Jane? Yeah, okay, what would you what would I think I would just to? listen. <laughs> I wouldn't say anything. I would like to sit at a dinner party and watch her, you and just know, listen to her. her repartee. Listen to her repartee. Ah, okay. I think I think Chekhov would have been cool. Uh, anyway, uh, future. I have no idea. Future, future, future. That's a good way to spin it. I, I, I didn't think about that. It's an interesting way to spin it. Okay. Well, I'm kind of curious uh -huh. about teaching and especially about um, teaching in New York. And um, you're at graduate level, which is a a little bit more mature group than college students, but um, are you finding that the generation that is currently in graduate school is very different from the ones that were immediately preceding it? Uh, not immediately, but um, oh, I've been teaching for more than 30 years, and I really have seen a change in culture. You know, the, the Reagan babies grew up uh, much more conservative than later ones. So there have been some interesting patterns. For example, in the school, it took much longer for any gay students to come out 
within our school than it did in society at large. We were, we were really late because actually journalism is a very male-dominated, macho, conservative world, believe it or not. Less so now, but it was for a long time, but even so. So that was a change that was interesting. Then we went through a phase of kind of with no feminists among my female students, which was most upsetting to me. That went away after a while, and then many more feminists, and now it's just fine. Um, mm -hmm. So I've seen some political changes in people's attitudes, which clearly reflect the culture they grew up in and, um, you know, what they were being taught to at school. Um, but in terms of undergrad versus graduate students, I don't teach undergraduate students. But I'm around them because, you know, we're smack in the college, middle of the college. There's a big difference in maturity, even if there's only two or three years in age. Um, and maybe it's the culture of the journalism school because I love our students. I call them anti-narcissists because they've chosen a career that's about finding out about other people rather than talking about themselves. And um, in this child-centered generation we have now, when there's me, 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 it's um, actually a real relief to be around young people who are more interested in other people than themselves and, you know, who have a kind of passion to make the world better, frankly. And I love that. It's so uh, inspiring to work with. Okay, just one more from me and then, Diane, you feel free to ask another if you wish. Um, so my last one is, what are you reading now? What's on the bookshelf in your home? I just finished a book by a Palestinian woman called uh, A Woman is No Man. Oh, I've heard that title. Yeah, yes. I can't remember her name, but um, she it's a first novel, and it's about growing up in a you know, in a Palestinian family in Brooklyn who are trying desperately to hold on to their traditions, including all the misogynist traditions and generations of domestic abuse, wife battery, to be more specific, and the, the women's attempts through the generations to escape it. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very simply written book, um, but it's quite powerful so that I just finished literally last night so it's all that that's on my mind and then I also finished a Richard Powers book not the one he just won the Pulitzer for but an earlier one called Time of Our Singing which is about a mixed race family it's a African-American woman marries a, a, a Jewish refugee just before the just in the middle of the war and she's a opera singer a wildly gifted singer and their children are wildly gifted too and it's this amazing sprawling novel about race in America which is quite a brilliant book so those happen to be the ones I finished the last two days the last two days I love that um, <laughs> Diane do you have any more questions well I hate to keep torturing you with questions I feel like we've sort of dragged you into a cell and said we're never going to let you out unless you answer all these questions but <laughs> I can't help asking you for advice because um some, I'm someone who um, uh, was trained to be a lawyer and was very interested in social justice, which is what brought me to your work, but was never trained really as a creative writer. And when I do uh, try to write things like that, I feel um, a little bit imprisoned by the habits of wanting to have outlines and lists and so forth. And I just don't know whether that's specific enough question, but what's your advice if you want to write and you haven't spent 30 years training 
and you've always read a lot and people have always said that's all you need to do but when you go to put pen to paper it's like I want somebody to you know maybe make that a little bit less enormous of a task with some specific advice about how to start and how to keep your spirit up as you go. So I'm going to ask you that. Well, I don't know if this answer would work for everybody, but mm. um, one thing I think is really fun to try is to take on a character who's quite different from you and use first person and have them talk about something you care about, but they have really different opinions. It's really interesting to have to write in first person, have somebody saying things you don't agree with, but but your character really believes, and that can be that can be such a sort of strange adventure to do that it can it can keep you going and get at, get yourself away from yourself too sometimes, which can get a little bit. Uh, like a spiral that goes down. I like that. Nothing. I haven't heard that before. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, it's a tip for listeners who want to get a workout. <laughs> All right, so we'll have to wrap it up here. The last thing we'll ask of you is where can our listeners find out more about you and your books? And you just send them to the URL. Sure, yes. That. it's My website is just www.helenbenedict.com. Very easy. So my books are listed there with descriptions, and my more recent articles are there too. And um, and what's coming up next? Anything you want to share, or um, I'm working on a piece right now for the Nation uh, magazine about my last trip to Samos, which was just a couple weeks ago. I just came back actually, talking about the plight of women refugees on on this island camp, which is now the most overcrowded camp refugee camp in Greece. I mean, there are 4,000 people living in a place that was designed for 650, if you can imagine. So a lot of them are living outside the camp in makeshift hovels with no electricity or water, and it's particularly hard on women. So I interviewed a lot of women when I was there, women from all over the world, and um, that's that story I'm working on now, but I'm also working on a novel about that same subject. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for being on the show, Helen. And that's thank you. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.